Hey, everybody. Welcome to our Thursday gathering, which, um, what number is this, Andy? Everybody has to turn on their geeky camera and do a geeky wave. This is uh, 54. 54. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's really starting to get up there. Okay. Hi, everybody. This cool thing about the, the, this session is uh, all my European friends. I think I have only have two. <laughs> All my European friends can join in uh, because <laughs> we make it a little bit more available. Hi, Europe. Yeah, cool. So what we do, uh, if you're new to this little show, what we do here is um, it's mostly a, a gathering where we just chat, hang out, do Q&A. Sometimes I, I make an initial comment or two, sometimes I don't. Um, and today I don't really have anything to say. So. <laughs> Uh, I, what I do want to mention is just a couple of things we have coming up, um, like announcements. We started, uh, uh, my, my dear friend, Joe Parent, um, started doing this thing on Tuesday. Yeah, on Tuesday on his really wonderful book. Um, what is it, A Walk in the Wood? I think I have it here somewhere. Oh, here it is. This is a really great book. So we're, this is what we're doing on Tuesday nights. A Walk in the Wood, Meditations on Mindfulness with an, a Bear Named Pooh. It's just the sweetest little book. And it's a really wonderful book on mindfulness meditation um, that, that Joe and, and his sister, Nan, Nancy, are uh, reading through and writing commentary on. So we just started that on Tuesday. And it's a wonderful kind of augmentation of what we've been doing on Monday with our meditation thing. So come join us for that. It's a freebie thing. It's great for kids. Um, and it's great for the kid within us. It's a, an adult book written for kids. Um, so it's a really fun Rob that we're doing with him. I did a recording uh, with Cold Reed. I think you guys, in fact, heard that last week when I was offline. That's about to be posted. Um, and I really, I had a really great time with her. She's an amazing gal, neurologist, Ayurvedic um, practitioner, um, and also Siddha medicine. She has some really interesting things to say about the power of sound and mantra. Um, so that'll be released. Uh, I'm interviewing Claire Johnson tomorrow. I think I did her a couple of years ago. Uh, she just published recently a wonderful book on, I think, The Art of Transforming Nightmares or something. It's really, really good. So we're going to be talking, she calls it her nightmare book. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about uh, a really skillful way to work with nightmare and nightmare principle. And then Ian Baker, um, who's really one of the leading experts on what are called these hidden lands, Bayol in Tibetan. Uh, he's a really interesting guy, great, great fellow. I met him in London a number of years ago. Actually, I met him here in Boulder as well. And he's written quite a number of books. And so he agreed to come on next week and we're gonna do something on um, hidden lands and how they're connected to pure lands <clears throat> and stuff like that. So some of the things that are kind of on deck. But I thought today, um, since there were some really cool questions that came in, we would just go right into those. And then for those of you who want to um, ask something, now's the time, here's the place to do that. Um, so that's what we do on these Thursday gigs. So the first one is from a couple of written ones. And then if you have something you want to come in live on. And, and by the way, if, if uh, the person who asked the question is here and wants to follow up, just raise your hand and we'll, we'll bring you on board. It's always a little bit better when I can have a little bit of exchange because otherwise it's, you know, it's just kind of bullet point question, bullet point answer. So the, the first one here is from Patricia. 95% of our life is lived 
out of the unconscious mind. Yeah, so this is this data that I've been riffing on for a while. 95 to 99% of what we do is dictated by these unconscious processes. Um, that's a pretty humbling assertion. So how can we utilize the 5% remaining to create sanity and accomplish the work necessary to integrate the shadow? Yeah, well, uh, the most important thing really is, is to use that 5%, one to 5% to bring the other 95 to 99% into the light of consciousness. <laughs> That's the path. That really is the path. Uh, is to, to really transform all of these unconscious processes into the light of conscious awareness. That, that's really what constitutes the path of awakening. Because until we do that, our lives will be buffeted around by the contents of, of the unconscious mind. Um, so really, the best way to use that 5% is to work to bring the 95% into our awareness. And of course, how do we do that? Well a number of ways, uh, inner work, um, because when you're working with the unconscious mind, you're working with inner processes. So it's, you know, inner work through psychology, um, therapeutic processing, shadow work, um, uh, meditation, spirituality, the whole spectrum. There's so many different skillful means along the spectrum of uh, upaya, skillful means available to us. Um, and so when you're talking about integrating the shadow, this is a term, you know, of course, made famous by Carl Jung. People tend to usually associate the shadow with negative elements. Um, and obviously that's true, but there's also what are called golden shadows. Um, and so, as is often said, we spend most of our lives either shadow boxing or shadow hugging. And so we're always projecting. Um, and the shadows are both the, the so-called good and negative aspects that we unwittingly just compute, or not compute, impute, confer, throw um, upon the world. And so until we do that, you know, we're, we're not considered awake. Um, until we do that, we're asleep. And parenthetically, this is in fact why we literally sleep, because we have unconscious mind. This is why the awakened ones literally don't sleep. They don't dream because there's nothing to see to dream. Everything has been transformed into the light of consciousness and they maintain a 24 seven awareness. So the way to accomplish the work necessary to integrate the shadow is, is to just do all the psychological spiritual work to bring these processes into the light of awareness. And that, that takes real effort, that takes real perseverance, it takes time. It's taken a while to download all this stuff into our unconscious body and mind and therefore it's gonna take a little bit of time to bring it in, into the light of awareness. Um, and by the way, on the, the most esoteric levels, you know, where is the unconscious mind? Well, it's your body. Um, Candace Perth, the neuroscientist says, you know, your body is your unconscious mind, literally. And so at the highest, highest levels, just to show you how far this goes, that when you completely bring all aspects of the unconscious mind into the light of consciousness, you no longer need a body, literally. And this is what happens with really advanced practitioners when they die. They, as outrageous as it may seem, the body literally goes up in rainbow light, literally, um, not a metaphor. They, they don't leave a body behind um, because they, you know, they don't really need one anymore. So that's a slight sidebar. But uh, Patricia, that's kind of what you do. Use the 5% to bring the other 95 into the light of awareness. 
Okay, from David. Yeah, so this is a comment from the from the uh, Dr. Chaudhary Kulreet um, interview. Very provocative. Not certain how much I feel it can be relied on as I am so embedded in Tibetan versions of things as taking the ego out of the multi-theistic perspective of India. That said, some Indian techniques have literally saved my life in times I needed to take extreme control of my body so it did not die, including not succumbing to cold or drowning or more. Oh, that's, that's good. Um, okay, so end of question. So, oh, here it is. So is it correct that Andrew agrees with the mantra perspective of, of the speaker, Cool Reed? Yeah, for sure, David, I absolutely. I, I completely grooved on what she had to say. It's why I uh, reached out to interview her because I thought her rendering, this comes from her book. Oh yeah, I have it here. So this is the book that, that inspired me. It's called Sound Medicine, How to Use the Ancient Science of Sound to Heal the Body and the Mind. The reason I reached out to her is because I, uh, pardon the pun, I resonated with her work a lot. And we always have to remember, David, that the Tibetan version arose from India, right? Um, obviously there are some differences for sure, but you know, especially uh, Buddhist Tantra, it was a massive debt of gratitude to the Indian traditions. And so I, I agree that there isn't anything she said I didn't agree with. Um, I found her work on this to be one of the most articulate renderings of mantra that I've actually come across. Um, in fact, I didn't get enough, as much time as I would have liked with her. She was super busy, but she agreed to come back on because even though I think we got into some cool stuff in, in the hour so that we talked, there's so much more to, to say um, and she has a lot more to offer. So I'm gonna to try to bring her back on. If you are here, David, um, and you are listening, I'm actually, I would be curious to see what didn't speak to you, what didn't land with you. Um, you mentioned here something about the multi or polytheistic perspective of India. Yeah, that, that is one of the differences. Buddhism is non-theistic um, and there is a bit of polytheism in India. But you know the processes, the practices, the teachings, especially in, in the Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, and then um, Kashmir Shaiva's point of view, I, I resonate with a lot of this stuff. I think it's just spot on. So there's not a lot out there uh, as overt as her book is on the power of sound and the power of mantra. Um, you have to dig a little bit deeper to find things like the the, the spandakarikas that particular is part of the, what's called the Trika lineage of Kashmir Shaivism. So that's, this is some of what I want to talk to her about. We didn't get into this at all. The teachings on vibration, um, the Spandakarikas, which is, which underlies everything that she talked about. We didn't get there. And she doesn't mention this in her book. So I'm, I'm not sure how, how much traffic she's had with this doctrine, but it really goes to the core of how the world is actually made of sound and light um, and the vibratory principle as represented in mantra. I'm reading a little bit about this now um, in uh, the Trika lineage as well. Um, so stay tuned, we're gonna bring her back and talk more. But if you are on David, and if you wanna say something about what didn't land with you, I'd be curious to see what didn't land. Yeah, David is here. I'm gonna oh, bring hey. him on. Yeah, fire away. Um, hi, well, I think it's a, a lot of it is um, that I've, 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 I've been very, uh, Okay, I've never really connected so much 
with the uh, traditional connection with mantra as being pure sound uh, expressing uh, the unexpressible. Um, it's um, it, it never resonates so much. But the but the main thing is the language, is the eye language. Yeah, and uh, we you got that again at the film that we watched a few uh, weeks ago uh, with Ramdas. Okay. Now, now, like so many of us, I'm eternally grateful to Ramdas for bringing so many of his students over to Trunk Rinpoche, who, okay. when they saw Trunk Rinpoche, they stayed with Trunk Rinpoche. Yeah. Um, and seventy-four uh, and seventy-five, um, at when Naropa started. Yeah. And um, so, uh, you know, I've read "Be Here Now" and um, have all sorts of friends who are students of 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 Leary and. And, right. and Albert <laughs> uh, Ramdas, but uh, for instance, Ramdas, as that short movie kept saying, "I am loving awareness." Right. And uh, right. so the "I am" portion of it, yeah, right. Kind of yeah. Really, I mean, why not? Uh, I, um, you know, um, I, I embody this action of loving awareness rather yeah. than I am, because the I am kind of seems ego language yeah. and not as skillful as say embodying um, compassionate action. Um, uh, I aspire to compassionate action, okay? Yeah, no, that's helpful. And, and on that level, I completely agree with you. And I think maybe what it would be interesting to, to, to press Ramdas, uh, hard to do not because he's in the Bardos, um, but even cool read that, that when they're talking about I here, you know, um, are they in fact talking about um, I uh, in terms of self, small s, or um, self, big s? Because if you're talking about I is big s, it's the same. And I, I completely agree. One book that you may want to look at, David, um, to really flesh this out a little bit for you is David Loy's wonderful book on non-duality in Buddhism and beyond. He has a really... Uh, a really elegant rendering there about how the phenomenology of, of I-ness in the Hindu tradition, the self is absolutely equivalent to no self in the Buddhist tradition. And I buy it, that makes complete sense to me. So I think when they're using, the languaging is always trickier, isn't it? And I, I would, what's an open question to me and you have to press them a little bit about this, is that when they start using I language, are they talking about I small s or I big S? Because if they're talking about big S, then that's completely resonant with no S, with no self. I, I completely, I have no um, issue with that. But for sure, small S, I, yeah. If you're throwing in ego, then that's a different thing. But I'm not sure they are. And I, again, I can't say with authority, I can't speak for them, but that languaging um, has to be, I think, unpacked to have a really accurate assessment of what they're really saying. But with that said, I, I get what you're, where you're coming from. It's sure tricky for um, Buddhists as well. Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the whole Atman thing, you know, Atman, well, what do you mean Atman? There is no Atman. Well, well, with Atman, if you, I mean, it's interesting. If you look at, in our languaging, if you look at Atman, Brahman, right? Brahman, Atman. Yes. Um, Atman would be child luminosity. Brahman would be mother luminosity. So can you make those kind of equations? Um, I think you can, but you just have to be careful. We don't want to put things in their mouths. I can't say for sure. But I do think that, especially after reading David's work, David Loy's work on this, 
that again, phenomenologically, um, big S and no S, it's the same thing, at least in my world. But anyway, appreciate it, amigo. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Okay, so from Chantal, also from the Cool Read interview, wanted to ask Andrew, which mantra can induce deep relaxation? I know Andrew talks about how important relaxation is to our practice. Yeah, well, on that note, relaxation is everything, um, both kind of colloquial relaxation, in other words, just kind of chilling out, and then also um, absolute relaxation, which means the, the general initial kind of quiescence that I think you're referring to, the shamatha aspect, um, that's a, an entry level. And I will give you some mantras you can do to work with that. But this notion of relaxation goes, I think, even farther than you may be suggesting, Chantal, that in many ways, the ultimate irreducible instruction, I often say this in relation to both um, spirituality and, and actually bardo teachings, what constitutes um, a good death is ultimate relaxation, where the only thing you have to do is just open, relax into the nature of your mind. And so with that said, there are so many different mantras here, but just to keep it really simple, I, I would rely on what are called the bija mantras, B-I-J-A, meaning seed mantras. These are seed syllable mantras. That again, these are, where do these mantras come from? Um, they, you know, they come from reality. There is, as she talks about, as Kuri talked about, they're, they're basically the vibrant mantras are basically tuning into the vibratory code of reality. You know, these, the people who come up with these mantras are, are fundamentally um, siddhas, I, I call them siddhas of silence. People that are so silent, so quiet, that they can, they can decode this vibratory code. And so the mantras are actually the sounds of the, of the awakened mind. They're sounds of, of the natural, of, of nature. They're sounds of reality. So people do not make up mantras. People tune into mantras. Nobody makes these things up. And so the, the people who have the authority to um, uh, you know, discover these mantras are ones who are so quiet, they actually tune in. And you can, you can do this, even in the, for those of you who are Buddhists, you can do a, a type of togal practice where you completely muffle your ears, you know, literally jam your fingernail, your finger, not your fingernails, jam your fingers into your ears, completely cover your ears. And you may notice an underlying a vibration, a hum. Neurologists would probably say, oh, that's just, you know, neurological noise, maybe. But according to the contemplative traditions, you're, you could actually be tuning in to this fundamental, um, I would say overtone, but undertone that, that uh, underlies all of manifest reality. And so there are tons of mantras for all kinds of different purposes, but the, the deep relaxation mantras are the simplest ones, the bija mantras, the seed mantras. And there are, there are fundamentally three of these, and, and Tibetan Buddhists will relate to these. Probably the most famous and accessible of all is, is OM, just OM, 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 OM. Um, almost every mantra actually starts with that Bija mantra. Um, so that would be that in and of itself, just simply reciting that OM, 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 and feeling into it, feeling what it does, this kind of depth charge of wisdom. That's a very powerful um, relaxation sound. The other one, there's two more. Um, the other one is ah, 
Um, and these I'll point out in a second, these are each associated with a chakra, by the way. These are designed, you know, this is maximum penetrating the vital point. These are like I talked in my in my conversation with Kurit, I talked about these as audible acupuncture needles, you know, these sounds that are designed to penetrate the chakras, to open them, to release the energy, to relax. So the second one would be AH. Uh, and again, you just you can just see which one, pardon the pun, resonates with you. Just repeat that one over and over and see what that does for you. And then the last one, of course, is HUM, H-U-M, HUM. It's a little bit more, it's a semi-wrathful mantra. Um, and just recite that, like when, when in, in the uh, tradition that David was referring to, Trump Rinpoche's tradition, he wrote this mon uh, monumental practice called the Sadhana Mahamudra, where the core mantra is what's called the triple HUM, 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 HUM. And that is, that, that's actually the sound of the awakened mind. And so that's another one. So there's more, but just for simplicity's sake, I, I would probably, number one prescription would be OM, OM. These are designed to penetrate the mantras of, of the head chakra, throat chakra, and heart chakra, respectively. And so I recommend you play with, with those and just see which literally resonates with you. But of all, of all of those, I would probably recommend the first one the most, OM. Um, recite it over and over. Um, charge it with, you know, quality of the speaks to you of, of devotion, receptivity, um, that kind of emotional affective component supercharges the mantras. The sound in itself has inherently curative opening capacities. But if you infuse it with uh, a kind of a, a devotional component, again, what is devotion? Devotion itself is, is a quality of opening. Um, so if that relates to you, om ah hum. And what I did, you know, when I did my really long retreat every single morning, we did what's called the yoga of awakening. So every morning when we got up for, for half an hour, we did this thing. And part of it involved what's called a, a mental recitation of exactly this mantra. In, in this case, it was all three syllables. Om ah hum, om ah hum, om ah hum, om ah hum. So play with those and just see what lands with you um, and uh, keep it simple. Keep it simple and, um, you know, get back to me. Let me know how these work for you. Okay. All right. From Harold. Would you say that this last year of COVID isolation is a liminal period of great change as well as opportunity? Oh, absolutely. Positively 100%. And Harold, I talk about this because I, I couldn't agree with you more. I talk about this quite a bit. Uh, when the whole thing started to come apart last year, I did a three-part thing for Tricycle Magazine. I think it's still available on their sites, a freebie, um, which was exactly on this theme, how, how to use this liminal space as an opportunity. I also came back and talked about it in a pretty big way on my platform with the 10-week program I did. Um, the Bardo was an everyday life series. And so um, I'm going to refer you to those if you want more info, because I riff on this a lot, because that is, in fact, part of the gift um, that was offered. And it's a little bit like what I'm going to be talking about with Claire Johnson tomorrow, parenthetically, because she has a wonderful phrase about nightmares, how basically nightmares are gifts with ugly wrapping paper. <laughs> I like that. And so... You know, again, we don't want to be dismissive and facile and too spiritual about it, but but um, this whole COVID thing is a gift in really ugly wrapping paper, as in fact is any obstacle. 
um, you know, uh, obstacles or opportunities in disguise. And so, yes, if we relate to what happened and is <clears throat> to a certain extent it's continuing to happen in a proper way, it's a tremendous opportunity. Um, but only if we relate to it as such. Otherwise, the default is regressive, not progressive. So with your permission, my friends, um, the tricycle place is a good place to, to hear me riff a lot more on this or the platform um, Bartles in everyday, everyday life. Okay, so uh, this next one is, is from, uh, is it Lilo or Lilo? Um, if you are here, I'm going to ask you to come on because I, I, I didn't understand your question. Um, what I can glean is English is not your primary language. And, and I mean, I'm sure you speak English a lot better than the language. She's here, Andrew. Oh, she's there. If you're here, here yeah, and you can come on. Please ask me your question because it, what you wrote to me just didn't quite click. So if you're here, please come on and, and ask your question live, okay? Well, I think it's me. We talked yesterday. Yes, I remember. Yes. I did my short uh, name for you. Um, is this the question about the, uh, the, the um, dream when I go to, to sleep, uh, sleep and I'm uh, just going into a different space uh, with dreaming? Yes, okay. Um, well, it's like, um, you know, I, I've had lucid dreams, uh, but not so often. But since uh, quite a while, and I didn't follow it up of several reasons that don't play a role now for this question, but since several years, I, uh, when I close my eyes, I just go to a different space and it's like I'm dreaming. It's not uh, like I'm thinking about something and, and visualizing or future or past or anything, but it's like I'm really like I'm dreaming. There are people I don't know, there are landscapes, cities, and it's like dreaming, but I'm totally awake, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not even that I'm gliding into dreams, it happens eventually, but it goes long uh, like that and weird things happen. And um, yeah. I, yeah, I just wanted to know, I, I have listened a bit since then and you probably it's what you call, call a hypnagogic uh, state. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to know sure. what you can do with it. What yeah. I now occasionally is that I try um, not to be so much just watching it, but uh, like um, touching something like the bark of a tree and get it into 3D and uh, participate and get it a bit into a lucid dream-like uh, thing. But maybe you have some ideas yeah, for how it can be. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's interesting you say that because if I was going to say something today, it was going to be a, a little bit on this topic because I think the last time, two weeks ago when I came on, I think, I started talking a little bit about some stuff I was writing on liminal dreaming. So what you're talking about is there's a term these days, Jennifer Dumper kind of coined it. Um, and by the way, if you want more on this, I interviewed her over a year ago, with Jennifer D-U-M-P-E-R-T. She's on my website. We did a conversation about her book called Liminal Dreaming. So those are two resources that you can look at, both her book and my interview with her. 
But you're talking about the liminal dreaming phenomena, which is an older term, which is completely ap applicable is, is still what you're mentioning, the hypnagogic space. And so this is a super interesting space where, I mean, there's a ton you can do here. Um, it's a, a really interesting thing to explore both from a witnessing, witnessing perspective, like what you're referring to. So you can do it as an and as observer and also as a participant. And so let me tell you both those tracks. As an observer, it's a really fascinating space to watch this kind of plasma of mind, right? Where you're, you're not awake, you're not asleep, you're, you're in this kind of hybridized space um, that you're talking about. And, and there are some reasonably reproducible articulate uh, ingredients to that. Certain, you know, people go through this uh, phase of, of uh, seeing lights and images, nature scenes, faces. Then the most interesting one is the thought image amalgamation phase where thoughts start to bleed into images you know, instead of thinking you're imaging, and then eventually that morphs into the second, to, to the fourth stage, which, which would be these really short, brief, like micro dreamlets, where it's, it's, you know, thought, thought, image, image, dream. And so you can watch that process, that in itself is super interesting, especially if you look at it from the lens of how the narrative structure starts to come apart. This is what makes this space um, in some ways, j just as viable as uh, lucid dreaming, because you're at that you're at that kind of transitional point where the ego is actually coming undone in this liminal space, and you start to see the gaps in the narrative. You start to see the holes in your storyline, and you don't see that so much in the dream states, because the dream, when you come back up in the dream, then the the egoic narrative is actually still back online. It comes back online. So in that liminal space, you can see how pages are being ripped out of this narrative of the relative sense self, self sense. And you can observe that. You can say, oh, this is interesting. Look how I'm kind of falling apart here. Um, and then in addition to that, that's the kind of the, the more passive observing, uh, observing role. A more active role is to then actually start to seed, you know, the transition. And by this, what I mean is what you can do instead of just passively watching things, this is a little bit more refined. With your mindfulness, and Tartan Tuku Rinpoche writes about this, you can very gently hold mindfulness onto a particular thought image. You can actually then watch that particular thought inflate. You know, first of all, it morphs into an image, then it inflates into an image, then it inflates into a little brief dreamlet. And so it's a very interesting way to almost incubate these micro lucid dreams and to actually then engage, actually can see these really short dreams. They don't last very long, one, two, five, ten seconds maybe. Well, if you get really good, you can use it as a form of wake-initiated lucid dreaming, where you can actually take this fully into a dream space. Um, but until that happens, it's just a very interesting thing to work with in either of those kind of vectors. One is just observing this process of deconstruction, um, and the other is to actually participate ever so gently by watching thoughts, holding on to them very gently, and then watching how the inner winds actually inflate them into a brief lucid dream. So something like that? Well, I, I just wanted to say, I, I don't think uh, verbally in this state. I don't think verbally or, or in, in, it's right. just, just the images. But, you're, but exactly, it's called auto-symbolic thinking. So you're not thinking, you're thinking, you know, the images are replacing the thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Would it you... happened to me first when I was uh, in a medita in meditation retreat and I almost fell asleep and then this started. And yeah. now I don't have to go so deep and it happens. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. So this happens to everybody. It's just a matter of how aware or lucid to it we are. And so it's really kind of cool that you're now more aware of that. The other thing that you can look at here if you want to go even deeper is read Evan Thompson's masterpiece of a book, Waking, Dreaming, Being. Um, he's a very sensitive philosopher. I also interviewed him about a year and a half ago. This whole book is, is about this particular topic, how the self-sense transitions mm -hmm. from all these different states. So if you want to go even a step further, I'd recommend Evan's book. on Okay. That. Okay. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. And it will absolutely positively kind of grease the skids. The whole thing also doubles as a form of what's called lucid sleep onset where you're basically oh. maintaining a thread of lucidity as you're falling asleep. So good for you. Very cool. Thank you. Just could you write, um, Andy, maybe the, the interview, I have access to the uh, interviews. You you mentioned you you did an interview. I just yeah. can't remember so the Andy, name. Andy can do that. So Andy would be yeah, just Jennifer Dumper, um, Evan Thompson, and then Evan's book, Waking Dreaming Being. Okay. Thank you very okay. much. Yeah, welcome. Okay. Welcome. Okay, so from Rhonda, hi, uh, Andrew. In one of your teachings, you described the dissolution stages during dying, like descending slowly down in water to the bottom of the pool. The description included descending all the way down through the subtle body to the central channel. Through this journey, one becomes more insulated from the activity of life at the surface. You suggested this may be how monks are able to set themselves on fire and not move. Is there somewhere you describe this most completely? Your teaching of that has been one of the most comforting visions I've ever heard to help those who, of us who are sitting with the dying. What looks challenging on the surface may be open and spacious for the dying. Can you share more or point <clears throat> to where I may hear or read more about this description? It's extremely helpful for those working at the bedside of the dying. Oh, cool, I'm glad, Ron, I'm glad that's helpful for you. Yes, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you where you can find more about that and I'll say a little bit now. Um, I write about this in some detail in my book, uh, Preparing to Die. I don't remember which chapter, one of the earlier chapters I riff on this. I also, um, where else do I riff on it? Most of the programs um, on the Bardo of Dying that, that I have presented. I'm, I'm trying to remember if I have anything online specifically on that. Um, oh yes, um, you will find it in, um, the, I did a, a six week course or tricycle a couple of years ago on navigating the Bardos. Um, so you'll find a riff on it there. But the deepest, longest rift is, is in my book, Preparing to Die. And yeah, I, I also find it really um, compelling because it, it's comforting in the sense that it describes what's actually taking place, that when a person is dying, they're just transitioning their identity from gross um, outer levels, the body, gross body, to subtle inner levels, the subtle body, and then eventually to the most subtle of all levels, the indestructible um, what's called continuum, the indestructible innermost body. And so um, 
um, I'm pausing here a little bit because I, I also now that I'm thinking about it, I talk about it in uh, in the, the, the course I just mentioned above, um, the 10 week course on Bardo's in everyday life. Uh, I just remembered I talk about it in that quite a bit as well. Um, I just remembered. So it's, it's a really helpful way to understand the whole dying process and how um, this transitioning is actually what's taking place. And therefore, as we subsend the outer body and transition inwardly, what happens to the outer body no longer actually affects us. That's why these monks can do what they do. They can enter these subtle indestructible dimensions. And it just doesn't matter a whit, doesn't matter a bit what happens on the surface. It just doesn't matter. It's called the changeless untouched nature. And so understanding this, not only is it very descriptive, but it is comforting because it's showing you that it's only the outer gross levels that are dying. The true you, the you-less you, the selfless self doesn't die. And that's exactly what we want to do um, is transition our identity from exclusive identification with form. That's what ego is, exclusive identification with form, i.e. outer body, transition that identity to a subtle inner body, and then transition it even further to this innermost subtle body. Um, by the way, this journey is recapitulated every night when we sleep and dream. So sleep and dream yoga also creates an opportunity to explore this journey. Dying, the Bardo teachings, just explore this in a more overt way. But it's I, I find it extremely helpful as well, not only in terms of being around dying, but also um, around what um, quite certainly will take place when I go through the process of death. And it happens on a third level in deeply deep meditation. Um, and in the Buddhist arena, it's one of the great gifts of Tibetan Buddhism. There are a host of meditations designed to work with all these bodies and therefore help make this transition. So briefly, what are called the inner yogas, um, dream yoga is an inner yoga, is included in this family. Um, uh, what are called generation stage practices are included in this inner yoga practice. A whole array of meditations for, for you to practice to actually experience this. And then that makes the transition from outer to inner, from inner to innermost. Then there's another set of practices that work with that. That's the genius of the Vajrayana of Tibetan Buddhism. They're really super subtle practices. Um, uh, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, if those terms mean anything to you, the fully formless meditations. So that's what's so cool about these, these uh, teachings and practices is that uh, they provide the map and then the vehicle, the meditations, where you can make the map your territory. Um, and therefore, what now just can seem somewhat theoretical to us, it resonates with us because it's true. This is a description of reality. But the most important thing is, um, you know, you read about it and then eventually you practice it, you experience it. And that's the deal maker, because then when things happen, like, you know, these monks self-emulating, Taekwondo, Duk, the great Vietnamese monk who did this, um, he and others can do this because they realize, you know, fire can't burn space, that there's a part of them that's completely untouched. And so if you can identify with that before you die, really, then death no longer really has any meaning. Um, it only death only applies to the world of form. Um, that which is formless, that which does not, that which is not. Um, oh, here's the way David Boy said it. Um, see if I can remember it exactly. Um, if we can discover now that the something I'm paraphrasing him that the relative self sense does not exist, the problem of life and death is solved. 
Such is the Buddhist goal to discover that which cannot die because it was never born. So this, this particular dimension is, is undying because it's unborn. It's actually literally called the changeless nature. And, and this is in many ways the summation of both um, living and dying practices to make this fundamental transition into identity. That in a certain sense is the whole shebang. So I'm glad it works for you, that's cool. Okay, from Kara, I just got a mindfold. Mindfold are these really cool black um, muffs. I have one somewhere down here. They're super effective little um, eye shades. I'm wondering the best way to start a dark practice. I usually practice with my eyes open and am interested in doing that in the dark. Are there other times you recommend wearing it? Yeah, you know, there's two ways to do dark retreat practice. Um, the, the sutra way and the tantra way. Um, I don't talk about the tantric way, um, but I do talk about the sutra way, the over-the-counter approach. And this is actually, this is a cool thing to do, literally. My teacher, Kempo Rinpoche, recommended we do it. I started doing it. Is you literally, he recommend going into your closet um, or going into your bathroom or somewhere where you can completely shut out all light, which is hard to do, actually. Light is very powerful. It's hard to, to completely zip it out. And that's where these little eye muffs really help. The way I recommend this is literally putting your, eye, your mindfold on um, practicing with your eyes open in a dark room wearing these things so all light is is removed but your eyes are open and literally it, to start it is just go in for 20 minutes and just see what it's like just be curious it's like wow I wonder you know what am I going to see what am I going to feel how does my mind express itself in this level of visual sensory deprivation it's really that simple and then as that becomes more comfortable if it speaks to you you know it's like well this is kind of cool then you can do it a little bit longer. Do it for 40 minutes, do it for an hour. Um, I recommend going really slow, being very playful, being very relaxed about this. Definitely do not um, try to do too much. Um, but if you start really short, um, kind of titrate your experience, you can start to learn a little bit about yourself. You can start to learn about the way your mind works and also how addicted we are to vision, to light, um, so in the simplest way, I would recommend that. Go into your closet, go someplace that's dark, wear these eye muffs, start for 20 minutes. If that's, that feels okay to you, extend it to maybe 45 minutes or an hour. And then just be curious, literally, just be curious. How does my mind work um, under a situation of intense or actually total visual sensory deprivation? It's really interesting. I, highly, I actually highly recommend it. Um, Andrew, uh, car is here. For, uh, oh yeah, no, okay. Totally, right. absolutely. Come on, come on board. Hey, hi, hi. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, because uh, you spoke about something. I think it was in one of the interviews, maybe with I don't remember, but I had been noticing in open-eyed meditation these little jerks that my the muscles of my eyes were making, yeah. and I was wondering if those were contractions, like actual contractions that my eyes were making. So I'm really curious about what will happen when I can't do that. Like, are my eyes still going to like do that in the dark, which will be interesting. Well, even if they do, you, you, it won't affect you because you won't see anything. So this is actually quite interesting. And this is why studying vision is such a super interesting thing to do. There's so much to say here, but here's one thing specifically. It, it's very interesting that uh, I read quite recently that 
if a fly is sitting in front of a frog, you know, allegedly frogs feed on flies, right? If a fly is sitting in front of the frog, the frog, the fly is invisible to the frog. It's only when the frog when the fly moves that the frog detects the fly. Right. And so in a very real way, we don't have to wait for the world to move because we engage in that same type of process by exactly what you're referring to, these very subtle jerky movements of the eyes where it's called microsaccadic or micronystagmic motion where the eyes are involved in a very subtle ocular flutter. And that very subtle ocular flutter works to figurate using Gestalt language to bring a figure out from ground. If we didn't have that, that movement, we right. literally would not enact or bring forth a world. And so what I recommend here is two things. Um, I recommend, and this is one reason it's interesting to do this like what the Zen people do is take your glasses off, sit in the day up against a wall, a white wall with your eyes wide open. And again, somewhat akin to what happens at night, just simply watch what happens to your visual field when your eyes become extremely still. Um, you may notice that your world kind of fuzzes out and even disappears and you can have your eyes wide open and you won't see. You're like the frog. In this case, it's not because the world has stopped. In this case, it's because your eyes have stopped moving. So um, other, uh, if you want references on this, I recommend the, the work of Donald Hoffman. On, on, uh, what's it called? I have it up here. Uh, Visual Intelligence. I recommend you read that and also a book by uh, Richard Gregory called The Psychology of Seeing. Um, they talk about these really interesting aspects of visual perception and how you can then use this um, even metaphorically, analogically, to realize how it is that consciousness actually figurates, brings forth and acts a world by consciousness itself actually moving. In this case, it's the movement of the winds of the mind that does it. So, I, I, like you, I'm super interested in vision, how the eyes work to bring forth the world, how we don't represent the world, we co-construct it. And one of the ways we do that is actually with this, this very subtle ocular movement. Um, Thank so, you. Yeah. yeah. Last, last question is, are either of those Bardo courses available to buy online? Yeah, they are, they are. Just so if you go, um, like, like my stuff is all, of, all available on my site. So the 10 week Bardo course, we posted that about two months ago. The tricycle course, you can get that through tricycle. Um, that's still up and available through them. But yeah, the, the courses I'm mentioning, um, they're definitely up on my site for sure. Okay, yeah, love your glasses by the way, very cool. Okay, all right, I got two more live ones, or actually two more written one. And if somebody has a live one, we can turn to you. So this is from Tim. I think I remember Andrew saying that he was able to have a lucid dream for up to an hour. Uh, correct. If it is, how do you account for such amazing longevity uh, of the lucid state? Um, I'm averaging about one to two lucid dreams per month. That's actually well, well above average, Tim, so good for you. And they only seem to last a minute or two. That's, that's actually really good. I uh, would love to be able to increase their length and frequency so I would have more time to work with them, for sure, absolutely. Well, you know, um, yeah, it, it's because I've been doing this for decades and it's, it's because um, I work with meditations that allow me to work and stabilize these capacities of mind during the day. So 
you know, it's kind of you to say that it's amazing, but it's not, it's like playing the piano, right? I'm a pianist. I mean, I said, I, I listened to someone like Vladimir Horowitz or some absolute virtuoso and it's, it's jaw dropping what they can do. Part of it is, yeah, they have some talents, but mostly it's because they work their butts off, right? They've just put a ton of time into doing this sort of stuff. And so I put a ton of time into doing this sort of stuff. And so I, I share this because, yeah, there's some magic involved, but it's mostly mechanics, really. It's mostly just causality, cause and effect. So to achieve this type of longevity, um, you know, work with your mind, because what are, what are dreams made of? They're made of your mind. And this is why the moniker of dream yoga is the measure of the path. You know, it's good, bad, and ugly in, in a certain sense. It will reveal your stability, clarity, lucidity, or lack thereof. And so as your mind becomes more stable, clear, and lucid during the day with meditation, well, guess what happens? That reveals itself at night. Your dreams become more clear and lucid and, and constant. And so eventually, of course, this reaches such fruitional levels, Tim, where, you know, the minds of the meditation masters all their dreams are lucid. There's no such thing as a non-lucid dream. Every dream is lucid. So um, yeah, it's it may seem a little bit amazing. It's actually not amazing if you do the work. I've done the work. Do I have these every night? No, I don't have them every night. Um, but especially when I go into retreat, um, absolutely is a direct correlation between my amount of involvement with the stuff, how much energy I put into it. And then this is just a natural consequence of that kind of effort, okay? All right, from Mariana, one of my two friends in Europe. <laughs> Hi, dear. Uh, question, why and more important, how do dream symbols, archetypes, and fairy tales speak to us? To which part of us do they speak? Why do they have such a big impact on us? Are there any studies on how this works? Okay, great questions. Um, so dream symbols, archetypes, and fairy tales. Uh, I don't have a lot to say about fairy tales, um, but I can say something about archetypes and symbols. How and why do they speak to us? To which, well, they only speak to us if we listen. <laughs> Otherwise, they're not speaking at all because we're not listening. We don't interpret these dreams. They have no impact, right? So for one thing, the fact that you mentioned this um, that they have such an impact means that you're open, receptive to them, that you're, you're a, a good conversationalist, so to speak. In other words, you're a good listener. And therefore, they speak to, what, to which part of us do they speak? They speak to that part of us who's willing to listen. And so the fact that you, you mentioned this is, is really wonderful for you, that you are listening. And they have a, an impact directly proportional to your ability to be so open to their messages and to receive that impact. So they haven't, this is something, you know, you should, you should pat yourself on the back. Why do they have such a big impact on us? Well, they don't for most people. They do for people that are receptive enough. Every once in a while, yes, a person can have um, an archetypal dream that will kind of barge in and kind of command attention. But most people, the, you know, who are interested in this stuff, they just, you know, they write that off as an anomalous, freaky experience, and they miss an amazing opportunity. They don't really realize it for what it is. So um, are there any studies on how this works? 
studies, studies on this one. Uh, nothing comes to mind. Um, sometimes I have to reflect on these and something will pop up. This is more in the domain. This is a question I could actually ask Claire tomorrow um, because this is more in the arena of, of non-lucidity. And again, not a dismissive comment at all. It's a super valuable way to work with dreams. But I don't scour the dream literature for non-lucid stuff, um, partly because it doesn't interest me as much and partly because there's just so much out there. So I'm not that up on all the data studies um, on how, how this works. That's not my cup of tea. Um, one place you may look, um, interestingly enough, is I was just recently interviewed by a gentleman, David Gordon. Um, he writes a little bit about this. He wrote a book called Mindful Dreaming. Um, you might want to look at that. That, that is exactly up, up, up this kind of alley. Um, and in fact, he interviewed me because he's doing a follow-up book on this topic. So David Gordon, he's a PhD psychologist. He wrote this book called Mindful Dreaming. It's on this topic. And he's a long-term Buddhist student. Um, what, when I talked with him, I was impressed with him. So you may want to go to that book. I, I did a speed read of it. And he, he riffs on this in that book. Um, so unless there's something else, Marianne, if you want to come on and say a follow-up or, or something around this, um, we can bat it around a little bit. But, you know, this stuff is, again, I'm not in any way dismissing it, not in the slightest. It's just that the lucidity doesn't really work so much with this sort of thing because it's a little bit like the relationship between um, therapy and meditation. Where, and again, these are all extremely viable. They have bandwidths of applicability. I'm not dismissing it at all. But, you know, when you're working in therapy, you are interested in symbols and archetypes and narratives and structures of that like. For sure, it's part of what that's about. In meditation, you're not interested in any of that. You're not interested in contact, in content. You're interested in transforming your relationship to content. Same thing with dreams. There's the, you know, the vast majority of dream work is in fact along these psychological lines, which again is super valuable. But lucid dreaming, dream yoga does not concern itself with this stuff. It's not interested in dream content. It's interested in transforming relationships to dream content. So with that said, um, there, is, there is tremendous validity to what you're talking about. It's just not something I spend a ton of, a ton of time with because I'm just more interested in lucid dreaming, dream yoga as disciplines. But I would recommend David's book. Um, and if you wanna come on and, and share something along those lines, I'm happy to bat it around with you, okay? All right, Marilyn. There are times when a small part of what I am looking at seems like a pinwheel spinning. What is that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, if you're on, if you're here and can come on, maybe you can tell me a little bit more about what you're experiencing. Um, well, what I can say is I can't speak to precisely why it would appear as a kind of a pinwheel spinning. And, and again, if you were on here, I could ask you some questions that might help. But one thing that comes to mind around what you're saying is that when, when we, um, slow it down and start to take a closer look at things, somewhat akin to the earlier question about vision. We start to see things actually quite differently. In fact, one other um, thing to do with your eyes that's a really interesting practice 
um, this is not, not looking even at a white wall is, and I started talking about this somewhat recently because I'm doing it more and more myself, is to actually just gently hold your gaze on an object as, as uh, constantly and as steadily as you can. Um, relax your vision, focus your gaze on whatever object is in front of you without like, you know, being super concentrated. Um, I know Tenzin Wang Yalrebiche does some really interesting practices where, you know, he basically says, do not close your eyes, do not blink. I don't care how many, how, how much your eyes are burning or how many tears are streaming. It, it, it's a it, kind of a little bit more, I wouldn't say extreme, but a little bit more um, heightened way of working with this more gentle approach of just simply allowing your gaze to abide, I wouldn't say fixate, but to abide on a particular object and let it rest there. Notice if you do that, how your perception of that object changes. Um, I'm not gonna tell you exactly how it's going to change because it's different for different people, but um, it's largely because our, our visual gaze is so um, fleeting, so um, um, kind of skiddy, so um, flighty across objects that we don't actually see things properly at all. And so when we slow down and stop and hold our gaze visually steadily, you will start to notice things like halos appearing, sometimes lights will appear, you'll start to see movements, um, and you'll in a certain way slowly start to deconstruct your usual way of seeing. Um, this happens spontaneously through meditation practice. This is just a little practice that can kind of heighten that. And then what that does, it's actually um, really quite compelling is, is it starts to, in a healthy way, destabilize, deconstruct the way we normally see the world. Um, and so I might recommend as an exercise that you try that as a general thing. I, I do it, it's a really fascinating thing to do. And what can arise, you know, is really interesting. There, there's also a study, if you can find it, I looked it up, um, it was done in the 50s by the uh, psychologist Arthur Dykeman. He did a very interesting set of studies in the 60s, I think, um, where he, somewhere along these lines, he would people bring people into these dimly lit rooms. David Lloyd writes about this parenthetically in his book, Non-Duality. Um, and he would, he would invite them to look at this blue vase. And then um, using some instructions, somewhat akin to what I'm saying here, people would be doing this for extended periods of time and their relationship to the blue vase would change profoundly. So this sort of thing, you know, when, when you simply slow down, start to look at things in a, in a more reflective, contemplative way, it, not metaphorically, it literally changes the way you see things. So Exactly. Yes, I'm right here. Hey, there you are. Can you hear me? I can hear you, and it looks like you're through a steering wheel. I am. I'm sitting in my car after breakfast. That's awesome. In the shade. It's great. <laughs> I get to relax on my day off. So I have experienced that like with my meditation teacher, uh, when I would be looking at him, his appearance would change. You know, he would, it, it would change. You know, he might look like somebody else or he might have uh, slightly different dimensions and things like that. So I am familiar with that. But th this thing is, has shown up a couple of times and I'm just really curious. It's like, if we were to look at a clock, it's all, it's usually over like at between two and three o'clock on the clock. And it's just like a certain part of the visual field. It's still visual, but it's like a pinwheel and it's just spinning. 
I was just curious what the heck that is. No, it's hard. Those are really hard to say. And, and we also cannot rule out what are called entopic visions in, in actual ophthalmal, ophthalmic issues. In other words, sometimes these have nothing to do <laughs> with anything. <laughs> no, sometimes it's just, it's just part of your visual system. Um, and therefore, literally, and I, I have nice relationships with optometrists because I'm interested in this sort of thing. And so I'll, I'll ask them. And they'll go, oh, yeah, that's a classic blah, blah, blah. That's a classic blah, blah, blah. It has nothing to do with psychospiritual things. It's purely physiological and neurological. So you can't rule out that possibility. Let me just say something about the teacher thing, however. When you introduce that topic that you look at a teacher and they start to change, that's a slightly, it's connected, but it's also a slightly different thing because sometimes the teachers... They, they can do very interesting things. And, and there, if you look at um, some pictures of his holiness 16th Karmapa, um, there, there are some images where, and again, who knows what's happening, where you'll see photographs of him and one, in one photograph he's there and the very next photograph, you're seeing like a rainbow image of him. And so like, is that happening? Is that a, a mere a photographic artifact? Or is something in fact happening from the Karmapa on his side where he's messing with you? Right. So I, as, as you probably know, I have been with teachers where they mess with you in this way. They, they will shape shift and, and they will take on these appearances and you're going to do like a double, triple take and say, WTF is going on here. That could very well be <laughs> playing games with you um, in a healthy way. So when you bring the teacher into it, everything changes because, you know, they can do all kinds of really interesting things like even disappear. So, but anyway... That's what comes to mind. It can be so many different things. It's hard to right. say for sure. Um, but um, it, I it seems like it seems like with my teacher, it it was more like he was emanating part of either his lineage or, like he said at one time, he had all of these. Um, I guess you could say teachers show up, and he goes, "You know what is this?" And his teacher said, "Well, those are not yours. Those are your students." So yeah. I think maybe he's just emanating, you know, either some of his teachers or some of mine. Yeah, who knows? Who, who knows? knows? Yeah, usually <laughs> when it comes to that sort of thing, I just completely surrender and go for the ride. <laughs> I can't figure this out. You know, something's happening here. I can't wrap my mind around it. I usually sit back in, in amazement, you know, and wonder and say, wow, look, look at this. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, where, that's where. Okay, I thank you. Yeah, welcome. Cool. Okay, it's not spiritual and neuro inseparable. Uh, well, mm, on an absolute level, they're inseparable. Uh, on a on a you know relative workable level, they absolutely are. They, they are separable, and this is you know there are. Again, Julia, if you're here and can come on and, and, and uh, help me with what you're really asking, they absolutely can be separated um, in the sense that you can have spiritual, in other words, phenomenological experiences that, that have nothing to do with neurology, that are completely independent of neural substrates. This connects to what I was talking about earlier. You can absolutely positively have spiritual experiences that have nothing to do with um, neuroscience or neurological correlates. But on upper, more surface levels, you can have more surface level um, uh, spiritual experiences that absolutely do have neurological correlates. 
it depends on how far down you go. So at the top, at the outermost level, what you're saying is true. Um, spiritual and neurological are inseparable. When you start to subsend the neural part, the spiritual it goes deeper. Um, it's no longer limited by neuro. It's no longer limited to physical. It's like what I was talking about earlier. It has nothing to do with gross and even subtle body. So your question can be answered yes and no. On outer levels, they're inseparable. On deeper levels, they totally are separable. Okay, one more from Mariana, and then I uh, will probably call it for today. How would you explain that to a four-year-old? Oh, your, your questions. Okay, my son told me yesterday, when I am looking at an object, it moves. Why is that? Oh, Marianne, these are tricky to say. You know, it's, it's not so easy to say exactly why that's going on, um, especially with, you know, the eyes of a child. Are, are they, in fact, seeing things in a pure way? And, and, and in fact, noticing the, the kind of movement that's inherent in um, objects. And, and what, what comes to mind here is, again, when you look at things in an, in an open-eyed way, um, a contemplative way, and sometimes children have this innate capacity, they can see things in, in their truest or truer dimensions. And so what we look at as static objects are not at all static. We are the ones that impute stasis onto this for, for um, a number of different reasons. So I can't say for sure why your four-year-old would be looking at something and seeing an object move. That's difficult to say for sure, <clears throat> but it is entirely possible that someone that young is still seeing an object in its more pure manifestation. Because again, if, if you're looking at things properly, even in this case, at, at a purely physical level, things are arising and in, in, uh, ceasing from, from the zero point energy field, the implicate order, all the time. There's, there is no sta uh, stasis in reality, period, none. Atomic particles are coming up out of the zero point field. They're dropping back into it at a velocity that, that happens with, so fast that we actually don't see it. We perceive and impute a stasis on top of that. So I can't tell you for sure why your, your four-year-old is saying that, but my intuition is that for, for someone that young, that he could in fact be in tune with this um, kind of fluid state of, of reality, the fact that things are always in this kind of dance of, of, of motion and, and exchange of energy and the like, and he could very well be tuning into it. But it, these are questions that are really difficult to answer um, because there's so many factors involved, right? Is it, again, like the other question, is it purely neurological? Is there a psychological component? Is there a spiritual thing happening there? Is it a blending of all those? Who's, who's to say? I sure as heck can't say. So those are just, uh, Marian, some of the things that come to mind around that, okay? I mean, children are cool, right? Beginner's mind, right? Children see things in a, in a really magical way. I mean, you know, they have a they have a, a relative type of pure perception. It's not the same as the pure perception of a master. This is what Ken Wilber writes about beautifully: is the pre-trans fallacy that it's very easy to confuse uh, pre-egoic states with trans-egoic states. It's not the same, um, but that's a slightly different topic. So something like that. Okay, one last one from Shirley. 
I like to try one of the nootropics for lucid dreaming. You said you tried galantamine, but I also see there's hyperazine A. Yep. Would you recommend trying either if I've only had 1.5 lucid dreams in a year? Absolutely. I would recommend it. And uh, hyperazine. Um, we're all different. I recommend galantamine because this is the one that has been studied the most. In fact, um, in the interview I posted, the last interview I posted was with Benjamin Baird. He's a neuroscientist out of UC Wisconsin. He's done, um, he authored, he co-authored one of these studies. There's a number of them out there. And the most recent one was one that he conducted on galantamine. So you can actually look up that study if you're interested in it. Um, I have had the best luck with it. I literally 100% of the time, every single time, every single time I have taken galantamine, I have a lucid dream. But that's not the way it is for everybody. Um, some people have zero luck with it. Um, other um, agents you can try are like the ones you're referring to. Um, David J. Brown in his book, Dream Yourself Awake, um, he gives, a, I think, at least one, if not two chapters on this topic. It is really uh, quite good. Um, I also interviewed him on the nightclub site a little over a year ago. There's another book called Advanced Lucid Dreaming by Thomas Ushak. Um, he also riffs a lot on this sort of thing. I, I do recommend it. Um, this is using the you know, neurophenomenological approach where you're in fact now using neurological agents, these nootropics, as a way to bring about or invoke, invoke a phenomenological experience, in this case, a lucid dream. So I recommend it, I really do. Um, I don't recommend you use it with constancy and frequency that I don't agree with um, because it, there's a number of reasons not to do that, but to bump things up for a while. Absolutely. Um, but so what I recommend is, is people inform themselves, learn about how these agents work. There are a number of them, see which ones may or may not work for you. But I, I have changed my tune on these sorts of things. I'm a little bit more open-minded than I used to be. And when I do my dream yoga programs in person, um, people sign a waiver and we use galantamine. So I'm a big fan of that one. So yeah, I'd go for it. I'd go for it. Just be careful. Check your motivation. Don't do too much. Be careful. These agents are relatively harmless, but they're never 100% harmless. Um, so you have to be just a little bit mindful about what you're doing. Okay, everybody. So unless there's a last one, oh, there's a last one racing in here from David. Yes, what is the name of the David Lloyd book on epistemology of Hindu terms that Andrew suggested? Yeah, so that is, do I have it up here? Yes. David, I have it right here. There you go. Non-duality and Buddhism and beyond. It's David's first book. Um, I think it's, it's a fantastic book. And he has two chapters, um, actually one on Taoism, one on, on Hinduism, one on Buddhism. And he writes really beautifully about this sort of thing. So I recommend it highly. David is an awesome guy. Really cool man. So, okay. Thanks, everybody. Got to go see you. Bye. <laughs> I love these sessions. Bring your questions. We'll do it again next week. Always great to see everybody. Um, same time, same place next week. I'm saying one good kind of wave goodbye to everybody here before I drift off into my lonely world. Always nice to see everybody, really. We've been doing this for over a year. I actually totally groove on it. It's mostly because I get to hang out with really cool people like you. So uh, what do we got? Uh, Monday, 
just to give you an idea. Actually, wait, Sunday, uh, wait, uh, what do we have? Saturday. Saturday we have movie night, conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually going to try to come on for this one. It's a really powerful, it's not easy to watch, but it's super important film about what we're doing to the oceans. So movie night on Saturday, Seaspiracy. If you haven't seen it, it's really powerful. Sunday, a book study group. Monday night, meditation group. I'll be there for that one on analytic meditation. Tuesday, Joseph, he's done such a great job. I was so jazzed by what he did on Tuesday with his book on uh, mindfulness meditation. Highly recommend that one. Um, webinar next Wednesday with uh, Dr. David, uh, not Dr. David, Dr. Uh, Ed. He'll be on. That's our, our once a month sleep doctor. So you have, if you have questions specifically about uh, sleep issues, medical issues, sleep problems, this is the, the place to bring that question. Um, so anyway, thanks everybody. Have a great week. Until next time, all the best.